want to say hi to everybody in this room and everybody at all of our campuses all around the Bay Area, people joining us online. Uh, we're in this series called Reconciled, and we're thinking at this time of the year about how God was acting in Jesus to reconcile us to Him. And that's what we're about. We have campuses all over the Bay Area, and we want to launch more because we want to help people be reconciled to God. We want to help everybody that we can uh, uh, find and follow Jesus Christ. Now, December is always a real key time for us uh, financially, as many people consider year-end giving. Anybody notice the stock market has been a little up and down lately? And uh, we're right now around 10% behind uh, projected giving for this year. We're being real careful with our expenses, so we're doing okay on that end. But we would love to make that gap up between now and the end of this year, the end of this month. So I just wanted to let you all know about that and to let you know how grateful I am we are for the generosity of so many of you here at our church. Now, I want to get in the message this way. In the Galapagos, there's a species of bird, the Sulogranti, and it reproduces by laying two eggs a couple days apart, but then the parents only raise one chick. When the second egg hatches, the firstborn chick, now a few days old, actually pushes the second newborn out of the nest to die. And the parents just watch this go on. This is known as obligate sibling murder, or, and I'm not making this up, naturalists call this the Cain and Abel syndrome. The second-born child is just a spare, just an afterthought, just gets discarded. I'm a second-born child. Anybody else a second-born child? You ever feel like you didn't really get the, the best when you come second? We had our second child when our first uh, was not yet two. And we read all the books about how do you prevent sibling rivalry and promote sibling peace. So we got Laura, the firstborn, a little baby doll to prepare her heart, to teach her how to be gentle and how to be loving. And we got home from the hospital. Nancy was holding the new baby. And Laura walked into the room with her little doll. And Laura said, Mommy has a baby, and Laura has a baby. Mommy's baby, Laura's baby. Wham! which we thought was not a good sign. Um, children between the ages of two and four fight, one study shows, on average 6.2 times an hour. That's 90 fights a day. That's 3,000 fights a year. So if you're a parent of little kids, no wonder you're tired. And this, by the way, is not a new development. Uh, in the ancient world, the firstborn son generally got the good stuff. This was called the law of primogeniture. And it's part of why the book of Genesis, if you've ever read through it, is kind of a series of sibling whams. Uh, Cain and Abel. Cain uh, uh, hates his brother. And when God confronts him, and uh, his question is, am I my brother's keeper? And his answer, of course, is no, I'm not. And if you read Genesis carefully, one of the things you find is that the law of primogeniture, the idea that the firstborn gets all the good stuff, continually gets overturned. It's very much like God is saying that blessing is available to those who the world system says are unblessed. A little foretaste of what would later get turned all upside down in the kingdom of God as Jesus presents it, where blessing is available to everybody. God in Genesis is looking for somebody who will say, I am my brother's keeper. And that brings us to this weekend story. This is a Christmas story, although you will not think it's a Christmas story at first. And as we go through it, I want to invite you to think about any broken relationships in your life. Any family members or friends or exes or 
uh, uh, another person where you need healing and ask you to think about committing to that during this message. Uh, we're following on, actually, the story that we talked about last week. If you didn't hear that message yet, go online and catch up. But there was a family in Genesis with 12 brothers, one of whom was named Joseph. And this is how his story starts. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now, some family background. The dad, Jacob, had sons by his first wife, Leah, his second wife, Rachel, uh, by Leah's maidservant, Zilpah, and by Rachel's maidservant, Bilpah. So the whole family had kind of a Kardashian thing going. And the two maidservants, Zilpah and Bilpah, are the lowest status wives, so their sons are the lowest status brothers. They would be easy to pick on, and that's what Joseph does. He gives his father a bad report about them. We're not told what the bad report was, but apparently Joseph decides... Kind of like Cain, he's not going to be his brother's keeper. He's behaving more like a spy. Now, Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age. Joseph was the favorite because he was the baby, born when his dad was an old man. And Joseph was the firstborn son of Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel. Not just that, we're told about the mom Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful, and we're told about her son. Now, Joseph was well-built and handsome, so Joseph apparently got all those good genes from his mom. One year when it was gift-giving time, Jacob got a gift, only one, and gave it to Joseph. It was an ornate robe. One of the old translations calls it the coat of many colors, and it marked Joseph out as the, the favorite. How do you think Joseph's brothers felt about Joseph? Dex says, when his brothers saw their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. It's very striking in this story. It doesn't say that they get mad at their father, who's the one playing favorites. Nobody goes to Jacob and says, Dad, I feel so angry at the way that you favor our brother Joseph. Nobody talks about the root of the problem. And we're often that way. Families are often that way. And the first sign of their broken relationship is not the presence of violence. It will get there. But the beginning is the absence of kindness. They could not speak a kind word. Withdrawal, avoidance, distance, ignoring, those things are meant to wound. And they do. Now, Joseph doesn't help matters any. Joseph has a dream where all his brothers... Uh, are like sheaves of wheat in a field, and they symbolically down to, uh, bow down to him. And he does not keep this dream to himself. He gathers his brother and tells them all about his dream. And when Joseph told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. There's no indication that Joseph had a clue about their pain. In fact, he explains his superior, superior future in detail to them. His brothers said to him, do you intend to rule over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he said. Now he has a second dream. This is a sequel. And this time all of them and also mom and dad bow down to Joseph. And he tells them about this dream too. His brothers were really jealous of them. Could anybody be that clueless? Uh-huh. I have. In the next verse, the brothers who are homicidally mad at Joseph, are away tending the sheep. 
And the dad, Jacob, calls his favorite son, Joseph, and says, I think I'll send you to check up on your brothers. In other words, Joseph, I'll send you off to do more spying, which is what started the bad blood in the first place, with brothers mad enough to kill you, with no parental protection to help you. Could a parent be that blind? Uh Uh-huh. I have. So Jacob goes. This is an unbelievable story we're going through. It's a Christmas story. They saw him a long way off. How did they recognize Joseph a long way off when they couldn't see his face yet? He wears a robe. Here comes that dreamer, they said to one another. Come now, let's kill him and say a wild animal devoured him. Kind of a wisdom note here from the text. Be real careful who you talk about your anger with. Often people have the idea that it's always therapeutic to rehearse your anger with a sympathetic friend. But if your friend reinforces your resentment and bitterness and envy, as happens here, yeah, Joseph's a jerk. It will actually just make your anger problem worse. Some people are like anger incubators. One of the brothers, fourth-born brother named Judah, comes up with an alternative plan. He suggests they sell Joseph into slavery. That way they make a profit and avoid a murder charge. And they could dip his clothes into goat's blood and show the bloody clothes to their dad, Jacob, so Jacob will think an animal killed Joseph. And that's what they did. By the way, what article of Joseph's clothing do you think they dipped in blood? They took the ornate robe back to their father and said, we found this. Examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. Do you recognize this? A little phrase that will come back in Genesis. We talked about this last week. You notice here they don't say our brother's robe or Joseph's robe. It's your son's robe, that dreamer. We do that when we're mad at somebody. We dehumanize them. They didn't even have to lie. They could just let the bloody robe lie for them. And Jacob is convinced that Joseph has been killed. And he goes into mourning. And he refuses to be comforted. This is a technical term. It means he chooses to extend his time of mourning on indefinitely. He says he will remain in mourning till he dies. So they get rid of their brother, but that doesn't get them what they want. They don't get their father's love. The family doesn't get healed. They get, you know, what they asked for, but not what they wanted. Joseph is separated from them for 20 years. He is kidnapped, enslaved. Later, he's unjustly framed and put in prison. Two of his fellow prisoners used to work for Pharaoh, and one night they both have troubling dreams. And it seems that his deep suffering has changed Joseph because now Joseph, who was so clueless about his brother's pain, notices that both of these prisoners are sad, and he asks them about it. And he's able to help them. And as a result, Joseph ends up being brought before Pharaoh, the great Pharaoh of Egypt. And Pharaoh had this weird dream with seven fat cows and seven skinny cows. If you've ever had skinny cow ice cream, that's where the name comes from. No, I just made that up. That's not, not actually true. Uh, Joseph tells Pharaoh this dream about the econ- is about the economy, that there will be seven years of economic growth and then seven years of scarcity. And he tells the Pharaoh how to use taxation to stabilize the markets. No kidding, I'm not making this up. This is so brilliant. A great Czech economist, Thomas Sedlicek, writes that Joseph gives the first macro forecast of an economic cycle in human history. And it's a fascinating book by Sedlicek. 
Uh, in Joseph's tax plan, he writes, Joseph offers Pharaoh advice. In this, we can handily recognize later Keynesian anti-cyclic and fiscal policy. It's an amazing story. That's an amazing book by Sedlicek. So as a result of this, Joseph is made prime minister of Egypt. The famine continues. Meanwhile, way back home, Jacob and his family are starving. And they hear that grain is available in Egypt. And Jacob sends his sons to get some. But he keeps one son home, his youngest boy, Benjamin, who, like Joseph, was born to his favorite wife. The other brothers are brought before Joseph to beg for food. It's been 22 years uh, since they sold him, and they do not recognize, they don't realize that this powerful official is their brother. They bow down before him. They lay their faces in the ground, just like the dream. And Joseph recognizes them. Joseph remembers. But he does not tell them who he is. This is core to the story. He pretends to be a stranger. He speaks harshly to them. He actually accuses them of being spies. And they tell him, your servants are honest men, not spies. Your servants were 12 brothers, the sons of one man who lives in the land of Canaan. The youngest is now with our father, and one is no more. And of course, that one no more is Joseph. Joseph says, well, if that's true, go home, bring your little brother back as proof, and I'll give you what you need, and you will live. And the reader, of course, is going to wonder here, why didn't Joseph just tell him who he is? They're desperate. They'll do whatever he asks. Does he want to just watch him squirm? Is he getting a little revenge? And the reason is that Joseph doesn't just want to forgive them. He doesn't want just to let go of his resentment. He wants to reconcile with them. He wants to reestablish a relationship. But that will take time. That will take the demonstration of trust. Christians sometimes throw the word reconciliation around a little glibly in ways that can do a lot of harm. And this story teaches how costly genuine reconciliation is. That's where we're headed. That's why this weird stuff happens. Joseph tells them they must leave one brother as collateral with him in Egypt until they go back to get their younger brother. And the brothers say to each other, Surely we are being punished because of our brother Joseph. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. This is a very poignant verse. In the initial story, the writer of Genesis doesn't record any words of, Jodas, of Joseph pleading for his life when his brothers betrayed him. But now, 20 years later, his brothers remember how he pled for his life. Now, they don't call him the dreamer. They don't call him dad's favorite. He is our brother, Joseph. And Joseph, unknown to them, begins to see this change that's happened in their heart over these 22 years. Joseph turned away from them and began to weep. They go home, and for a long time their dad will not allow them to return because he does not want to lose Benjamin. But the famine is relentless, and the ancient world was a cruel and brutal place. And eventually, in desperation, Jacob sends his boys back to Egypt, now with Benjamin, now with his favorite son. And Joseph arranges a feast. They still don't know who Joseph is. 
And here's another little weirdity. When portions were served to them from Joseph's table, Benjamin's portion was five times as much as anyone else's. What a strange gesture. Why would he do that? Well, one more time, the youngest son is being treated as a favorite. And Joseph watches. How will the others respond? Will envy still win? Has anything changed? He watches. The brothers leave, and Joseph seems to be extraordinarily generous with them. He, he says that he'll send them back home to their dad with all the grain that they need, plus all the money that they brought. He's giving it to them all for free. They're quite staggered. But then he has his servants go after them and bring them back to him, back to Egypt, because he says he's missing a treasure. He's missing a cup, a silver cup, a priceless silver cup, his prized possession. And all of their belongings are searched, and the cup, the silver cup, is found in Benjamin's sack. Benjamin's sack. And Joseph says, the rest of the brothers may leave, but Benjamin, the favorite, must stay behind. Benjamin can rot in prison. A great rabbi in the Middle Ages said, a true penitent is one who commits a sin and is later is given an opportunity to commit the same sin and refuses. That is a true penitent. Here are the brothers once more with their younger brother, whom their father loves most of all, and they can be rid of him. They did it before. This time, they don't even have to do anything wrong. As far as they know, it's Benjamin's own fault. And Judah stands up. Judah, whose idea was to betray and sell Joseph and deceive his father 22 years ago. Judah, whose idea it was to betray and violate his daughter-in-law, Tamar, as we looked at last week. That Judah stands up and makes the longest and most impassioned speech in the entire book of Genesis. He says that if he and his brothers go back to Egypt without Benjamin, they would bring their father's gray head down in misery. He goes on. If my father, whose life is closely bound up with the boy's life, sees that the boy isn't there, he will die. Your servants will bring the gray head of our father down to the grave in sorrow. And the point is, never disappoint a person with a gray head. They are particularly precious to God. <laughs> Judah's words are unspeakably poignant. He says to Joseph, again, he doesn't know who Joseph is. He says, we have an aged father, and there is a young son born to him in his old age. His brother is dead. That's Joseph. And he is the only one of his mother's, that's Rachel, the favorite wife, he is the only one of his mother's sons left, and his father loves him. Judah doesn't say, my father loves me or our father loves us. There is a flaw in that father Jacob that may never be fixed. And his father loves him. But Judah knows now that the path of envy and resentment and hatred and self is the path of death and has caused him to betray all that is good, ruined his life. And he has found a way to honor his father with that mixture of good and bad that is his father, Jacob. 
And then comes the climax of the whole book. Judah says, let me take the place of the boy Benjamin. I will go to prison. Let my brother go free. I will suffer on behalf of my brother rather than seeing suffering inflicted upon my brother. For the first time in the ancient world, punishment, punishment is seen in a new light in the possibility of redemption. Am I my brother's keeper? That's the question that's haunted Genesis from Cain and Abel and Isaac and Ishmael and Jacob and, and, and Esau. And every time, no. Finally, for the first time, with the full awareness of the consequences, this ancient haunting question is answered, yes. At great cost. By probably the worst of the brothers, Judah. And now Joseph knows. They have changed. They are not the same men that they were before. They have become their brother's keeper. And now he's able not just to let go of resentment, but the reconciliation can commence. See? And the rabbis, in a lovely saying, used to say that this is the day that forgiveness was invented in human history. So there was no one with Joseph. He makes all the Egyptians go out of the room. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him and Pharaoh's household heard about it. And his brothers were too stunned to take this in. So he had them gather close to him and told them again, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold to Egypt. And that last phrase strikes me as so human. In case you're wondering which brother Joseph I am, it was the brother Joseph that you sold to Egypt. Sometimes we use the phrase forgive and forget, but they're not the same. In, in, in fact, if you forget something, you cannot forgive it. Joseph doesn't forget. He doesn't live in denial. He doesn't pretend it didn't hurt. He doesn't excuse or rationalize what they did. He brings God into the equation. And now, do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. Now, this is crucial because attempts at reconciliation in our world, yours and mine, can be damaging if they're done too quickly or done with somebody who is not genuinely repentant or genuinely trustworthy. It would not have been right for Joseph to say, do not be distressed, until he knew they were deeply distressed. They had changed. They were now trustworthy. See, pain and distress over wrongdoing are an indispensable part of spiritual growth and moral health. And if somebody has wronged you, you can let go of your desire for revenge even if they're unrepentant. You can decide not to live in a prison of resentment even if they don't repent. But reconciliation, the rebuilding of a relationship, that requires repentance and time and demonstration of trustworthiness. And, and that's what happens here after 22 years. And the brothers are healed. And we're told Joseph gave them carts and provisions, and to each of them he gave new clothing. And it doesn't say what kind of clothing, but my guess is he got them all robes, very colorful robes. 
And there's quite an immense amount of crying in this reconciliation. In fact, the Joseph story has more weeping than any other story in the Bible. But I have a feeling there was some laughter too. And I'll tell you where I think it is. I think it's in um, verse 24, chapter 45. Then he sent his brothers away. And as they were leaving, he said to them, don't quarrel along the way. Remember last time you ended up selling one of us. That was me. What a kidder. Now I mentioned this is a Christmas story. Sometime later, their dad, Jacob, is dying, and he gives a blessing to all of his sons. The most important blessing did not go to Joseph, the golden boy. The most important blessing did not go to Benjamin, the baby, the other favorite. It went to Judah. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your father's sons will bow down to you. That wasn't the dream. You were a lion's cub, Judah. The scepter, that's what kings hold, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of nations shall come, shall be his. He will tether his donkey to a vine. He will wash his robes in the blood of grapes. The scepter, the crown, the kings of Israel will come, not from Joseph, not from Benjamin, but from Judah, a king one day named David, and then a king of another kind who would be called the son of David, that is, Jesus, who will also be called the Lion of Judah. He will on Palm Sunday ride into Jerusalem on his donkey, the symbol not of military might, but of peace and reconciliation. His robe will be taken from him and washed in blood. And he will say, as his ancestor Judas said before him, let the punishment fall on me. Let the cross come to me. I will drink the cup. I am my brother's keeper. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Through Jesus, you can be reconciled to God, forgiven and accepted and loved, in spite of my sin and yours. But this is part of Christmas, too. I cannot say, God, I want to accept your gift of reconciliation and acceptance for me, but I don't want to seek reconciliation with somebody else. I'll take it from you. I want to give it to them. Gang, the way of envy and resentment is tried before, and it always leads to death. So, this Christmas, this Christmas, where is God calling you to reconcile, at least to seek it? Maybe your brother or your sister or your mom or your dad or your son or your daughter or your ex, somebody at school. Will it be hard and messy and confusing and maybe take repeated conversations and maybe take 22 years? Maybe, maybe. I know this, there is a difficult person in your life, and you actually need them. They are a part of your growth. If you do not have a difficult person in your life, contact the church because we keep a list of difficult people, and we will assign one to you. I want to ask you, if you make a commitment, whatever call you got to make or note you got to write, that you will pursue reconciliation in light of what God has done through Jesus for you. And then I want to say a pastoral word, because I know, I know, I know, many of you have suffered what might be called deep hurt. 
You think maybe you have an ex who betrayed you, or a child who rejected you, or a business partner who cheated you, or a brother who abused you. You have been betrayed or lied to or lied about, and it's been done deliberately and openly and is unacknowledged and unrepented and unconfessed. And I know what it's like. Ironically, or maybe not, this week Nance and I traveled a few thousand miles to have a long conversation that we hope can lead to reconciliation in a situation of great brokenness. And the details don't matter, but it's been broken for quite a few years, not 22 years though, at least not for me. And it's been pretty painful at times, but so far I have not been kidnapped or enslaved or thrown in jail like Joseph. I don't know if full reconciliation for all the people involved will ever come. I don't know. That can only be based on a full acknowledgement of truth and genuine trust. But I know my own capacity for brooding and resentment and self-pity is astounding. I could easily qualify for the self-pity Olympics. And I know that the way of chronic bitterness leads to death. I know that when Joseph was kidnapped, the Bible says God was with Joseph in slavery. When he was arrested, the Bible says these amazing words, God was with Joseph in prison. And that Jesus is our Emmanuel, and that means God with us, God with you right now. So I'll make you a deal. I will ask God every day to give me the power to be my best self. I will never give up on the dream of reconciliation, truth-based, sin-confessing, wrongs-amending, heart-healing, God-powered reconciliation. I will continue to pray and work and hope for that and ask everybody who's part of our church to do the same in your life, to be a reconciliation seeker in your life. Deal? <laughs> Deal? Are you all excited about seeking reconciliation? All right, let's pray together. God, I pray for everybody who knows what it feels like to be hurt or wounded or betrayed or victimized, rejected. I pray that you would give wisdom and courage and softness of heart and determination of spirit. I ask that you would be with us on this journey of reconciliation. I'm going to ask everybody to keep your heads bowed for a moment, and we're going to take uh, uh, just a couple of moments to reflect on the relationships in our life. And this time of year, I know, uh, can be a real tender one. So I want to just uh, ask you to allow God to speak to you in these next few moments. As you look back over the recent weeks, or maybe months, or maybe years, ask God to show you a person who has been on your mind and in your heart quite a lot. In your mind's eye, get a good look at that person and hear their voice, see their face.
then take a moment and ask God why this person has been on your mind. And speak to God directly right now about your relationship with this person. And then ask God to reveal to you your strongest emotion when you reflect on this relationship. What are your greatest concerns or fears or hopes? And if you desire something in particular, ask God for it now. And then finally, uh, take a moment to express willingness to God. It may be that there's a step that you need to take towards this person. You may need to make a phone call or write them a note or go to their home, have a conversation. God gave his son on a cross to be reconciled to you. And he asked you and me now to be reconciled to the people in our, in our world that is crippled with brokenness and envy and hatred. So will you right now make a decision, make a promise before God, whatever God is calling you to do as best you can discern it, that you will do. Take a moment make whatever decision you need to make. Heavenly Father, I pray for every heart listening to my voice right now. I pray for every hurt, every burden, all the anger and fear and confusion, all the darkness. God, would you cleanse it away? Would you light our path? Would you bring the miracle of reconciliation between brothers and sisters. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.